Hello and welcome to the first ever Northeast Law Review podcast by Newcastle University Law School. I'm Matthew Cleary, a third year law student here at Newcastle. And I'm Neve Kenny and I'm in second year law student here at Newcastle. And today we are having a conversation with Dr Connell Mallory about the Overseas Operation Bill. First of all, Connell, thanks for coming on and getting involved with the podcast. How are you doing? Yes, I'm good. Guys. Yeah, congratulations. I think the podcast is a, is a great idea. I think it's a, a great way to develop a bit of engagement between staff and students in the school and hopefully get us talking about some of our research interests. I'm fine. Yeah, I'm holding together okay. Thanks very much. I've got to say, Connell is a senior lecturer here at Newcastle uh, in law, but you're not from Newcastle, are you, Connell? No, no. The, the, the accident gives me away. I, I've been in Newcastle on and off for about 15 years, but no, I'm from Belfast originally. And so I was brought over here for um, for university and I never really left. So did you study in Newcastle? No, so I came over and I did the exempting degree at Northumbria. So I did the four year degree there. Um, and my process then was that I, I left, went back to Queens and I did an LLM in human rights law at Queens. Uh, and during the masters, I realized that I probably wanted to to continue research and continue education in, in human rights. And so I, I reached out to one of my old lecturers, Rona Smith, who's now a what, you know former head of school at Newcastle and she's professor of uh, international human rights law. So I got in touch with Rona and just through, through discussions with her, we managed to find a way to get me some funding for a PhD, which brought me back to Northumbria. And then I spent um, probably another four years at Northumbria as a lecturer and, uh, and ultimately a senior lecturer there as well before moving to Newcastle in uh, 2017. What was your PhD about and does that link with what um, you're researching now? Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely, yeah. And it, it sounds like I haven't moved on, to be honest, Neve, but uh, I, I have a little. Um, so my, my PhD was about the Iraq War and uh, a group of cases that came out of the Iraq War, which sought to hold the UK government res- um, to account for violations of human rights which took place in, in Iraq, okay? The, the concept is known as the extraterritorial application of human rights law. In, in essence, it's, it's quite simple. Whenever states sign up to human rights treaties uh, and whenever they legislate domestically to protect human rights, uh, they tend to do so in a territorial format. So they're essentially saying to, you know, their, their citizens are saying to the global community, we'll protect human rights, but we'll do so only within our territory, which is wholly at odds with the notion of human rights, which is, you know, it's universal. It's we all have human rights because we all have human rights. Everybody should benefit from human rights. And so states shouldn't be able to do things abroad that they can't do at home. And so a a whole batch of cases began to get brought, particularly at the European Court of Human Rights, but then laterally in UK courts, specifically around these Iraq war abuses. And so my my PhD looked at how the Iraq war cases and the whole phenomenon around them, they they pushed forward this, this notion that Human rights don't just apply on the domestic territory of the of the state, but they apply the obligations apply abroad also, uh, and so that that ties neatly in really with the overseas operations bill, which um, is, is really going to seek to to prove to be an obstacle for holding uh, you know the state and an individual to account for a human rights violation which which occurs overseas. I'll, I'll add to that. I've been I've literally just started my international. Um human rights module this year and we've been starting with the whole debate around universe universality of other uh, human rights against like cultural and sort of state by state human um 
human rights development and it's been super interesting and um, yeah i've really enjoyed that so far no no it's, 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 a, it's a really topical topical area because there's you know there's there's legitimate reasons why uh, you know why a state might might want to interpret human rights differently uh because you know some because you a, a state shouldn't be uh, having to impose alien norms on its own citizens just to make the rest of the world happy but then equally you need to strike that balance where you're actually protecting rights at the same time but yeah on i guess go on to this blog that you've written about the overseas operations bill and um, i just thought, start by asking sort of because you, obviously you're an academic but how did you get asked to write for the blog or did you apply or what's the sort of process there yeah, good question. Okay, so so there's different blogs that have different purposes. Okay, so sometimes a blog will host what, what's called a symposium, where you'll have the you know one of the editors of the blog or somebody associated with it. They uh, they invite specifically designated experts to uh, uh, to talk about a specific issue. Then you have other blogs where it's really just where they have a series of ongoing contributors where it's the same four or five people who come up and, and try and react quickly. And by react quickly, it's just in, in a sense, it's, it's um, send it in and it might be published a day or two later, as opposed to an academic journal, which can take up to a year for an academic journal to turn around submission to publication. Um, yeah. the, the, the blog that I submitted to the, the UK Human Rights blog, um, I, I pitched them the idea of the article because it was, uh, or of the blog post, because it was, it was a theme that I had seen in, um, in the parliamentary debates around the overseas operations bill. Um, it's not the type of thing that I think that, that an editor sees and says, oh, you know, let's find someone to speak about it. And, and so it's probably the more common way in which people publish on blogs is, is just to pitch an idea. Um, uh, now, the UK Human Rights Law blog, is, is, it's an interesting one in that it's, it's largely run by practitioners. Um, it's, I think it's sourced out of a, a, a Chambers of Barristers down in London. Um, mm -hmm. And there, uh, the convening editor down there is a, is a junior barrister who seems to be, um, seems to be flying in his world. And, um, uh, and so he, on, on the side, as well as practice, he, he edits his blog and gets, uh, gets things up. Now, now you'll find that there are other blogs like the UK Constitutional Law blog, which is, which is a, another big one. Um, and it's run uh, exclusively by professors of public and constitutional law down at Manchester and, and, and Cambridge, respectively. So how long did it take you to write the Blog, I, I wrote it in, in an afternoon. Um, yeah, it just just an afternoon. I spent the morning looking at the the, the debates, and then uh, I kind of um, got got a hunch about the theme that was coming out of it and what my argument was going to be. So then I spent just a couple of hours in the afternoon writing it down, and then I sent it I sent it over to a friend to have a look at, and then I um, I submitted it to the blog that evening. Uh, but this is, I mean, this is one of the things, again, just going back to it, you know, a, a blog um, is uh, is great in that sense, in that it's it, it's impactful immediately. You know, it's the debate took place and within a couple of weeks I had the blog up and you can't, you just can't do that with a journal article and um, that has to sit there for, uh, to go through peer review, uh, blind peer review. Um, so the, the, uh, the academics don't know who's written it and you don't know who's reviewing it and it, it, it can take a, a lengthy period and that's necessary because uh, it's how we as academics hold each other to account. A blog, you know, it serves a different purpose. Is that, so with the journal articles and sort of that sort of time scale is there maybe for some law some areas of law maybe not but is there a sort of a fear that things might change in what you're writing whilst you're wait, wait, waiting to get it published 
completely uh, it's terrifying you know yeah. you, you could um uh yeah um it, I, I i don't write on it um thankfully and, and it, in a sense it was a conscious decision not to but imagine trying to write about the constitutional uh, elements of brexit or imagine trying to write about the um, the eu elements of, of brexit and the and the or even actually about how the process is going with brexit in an article which will go away and at best at absolute best you'll get a decision back within a couple of weeks and it might be published in the next edition, um, which is uh, a couple of months later. I'll give, I'll give you an example. Um, so uh, Rona, Rona Smith uh, and I, alongside one of our colleagues, um, Sean Malloy, who's, who's uh, he's just moved, he's now a lecturer at Northumbria. We wrote a piece on the UK's human rights position after Brexit. So it was, it was very loosely in, uh, linked to, to, to Brexit. Uh, and in the intervening period between uh, us starting the article and finishing it, the UK changed government. Um, we, we changed from Theresa May and her deal with the, if you remember, she had the backstop and everything in place um, and, and quite a close alignment with the European Union on international issues, which was quite pertinent to the arguments that we were making. That changed to the Boris Johnson government, which was very, very... Yeah, uh, uh, perhaps not as far as hostile to the European Union, but certainly didn't want to work as closely on, or at least commit itself to work as closely on international affairs. And so, you know, we, we had to we had to totally rewrite sections of the sections of the article before um, submitting it. So, how do you think law students can use blogs um, and articles in a different way? Obviously, when law students write essays for their degree, the first point of call is journals and blogs can often get le left behind um what do you what do you think do you think they're as important a, a great question Niamh. and you, you're really you're you're you're, you're walking a tightrope on this okay um so first I, i'll make a correction and i'll say i don't think that the first place that you should look whenever you're writing an, uh, an answer to a um uh to an essay or to or even preparing for an exam is, is an article your first place is always textbooks and from there you, you jump in Eve, and absolutely right to the um uh, to the journal articles where we're having got that kind of bedrock understanding from your powerpoint slides from recap from podcasts or whatever your lecturers are using this year and textbook chapters you can go further and you can go into depth with journal articles now the blog is the is the last place that you probably want to come because come to it because the merit in in the blog post is really in its um in how contemporary it is um, so if somebody was writing on, on torture this year, as, as I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about with the overseas operations bill, my blog post could be quite useful because there's not a lot of academic commentary, which will look, look at the same issue. Um, that being said, my blog's relatively useful because it's, you know, the, the, the place that I posted it, the UK um, Human Rights Law Blog, just like the UK Constitutional Law Blog or the European Journal of International Law Blog, they're fairly re reputable, okay? It's, it's different if you end up stumbling across the wrong blog um, by uh, where it's it's you know somebody who perhaps is is just voicing their ideas and opinions without any expertise uh, and it can be really difficult to draw that line as a, a as a student because realistically it's google that's presenting you with these 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 um uh, the list of findings yeah yeah and um, i guess we can move on to your blog specifically and so you've written about the overseas operations bill so what is the bill? What, what is it bringing in? Right. Okay. The context is really important in this bill, just, just because 
there's there's the, the, the principal criticism of this bill is that it's not necessary. We, we actually don't need it, okay? The, the, the argument that has been given by the government as to why we need the Overseas Operations Bill is derived largely from the Iraq and the Afghan wars. After these wars, and actually to, to a large extent, while British troops were still there, there was um, a huge number of accusations of um, uh, that they'd committed human rights violations, that they'd um, violated the laws of war. In particular, uh, that they had um, some of their actions amounted to torture or to inhuman and degrading treatment. Some of their killings would be described as unlawful killings because they, they were taken outside the course of where you could legitimately take life in conflict, okay? And so the result of this was that there was a, a huge number of investigations taken of uh, into British soldiers, okay, um, for their uh, for their actions. Um, some of these were taken in criminal law, and some of these were taken in, under um, uh, under tort, where the family uh, weren't a family member of you know the deceased uh, Iraqi civilian or or maybe the, the victim themselves um, were seeking some type some type of uh, accountability for the the actions of the um, uh, of the forces. And so the result was that you, you have the situation where you've got hundreds of British soldiers who've come back from battle and they're, they're having to, to undergo investigations um, and they're having to talk about events that took place three, four, five, six, ten years ago um, and talk in detail about what happened that night. OK, now the argument that the government makes is we need to sh shut off these investigations. And so what the Overseas Oper Operations Bill does is... is it, it's a complex bill. It, it does a whole host of things, but three things in particular, okay? The first thing is that it's going to impose a presumption against prosecution where five years has passed from uh, an incident, okay? So an incident of alleged torture or abuse or an incident of unlawful killing, okay? After five years, the presumption is we don't prosecute the soldier. That's it, okay? The law leans us away from, from trying to prosecute the individual. The second part of it is that if the service prosecuting authority, so the, the kind of the policemen and the, the CPS of the, of the armed forces, if they are going to prosecute, they have to take into consideration a whole host of, of, of things that you, you by and large wouldn't take into consideration with, with some other crimes that are committed domestically. So you, you take into consideration how many times the individual has been investigated, what their state of mind might be, um, uh, uh, what the public interest is, obviously quite a, quite a common one. Okay, so there, even after five years, if there is going to be a prosecution, it needs to meet a really quite high threshold. Okay, And the third thing, and perhaps the most concerning thing with it, is that even if a prosecutor gets to the point that they say, right, we have clear evidence here of, you know, X, Y, or Z, they then need to get the consent of the attorney general or in, in Northern Ireland, the, 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 um, uh, the, the relevant body there in order to bring the prosecution. So once you, you, everything is funneled into the attorney general, who's, you know, it's a political representative, is, is, is uh, an MP, and it, it puts real concern on the ability for any litigation ever to be brought against the, uh, uh, against, or prosecution to be brought against a soldier. Now, I said at the start, my, my the, the chief concern is that there actually doesn't need to be a new bill to protect soldiers like this, okay? And the, the reason is because there have been so few prosecutions for soldiers for any offenses committed in Iraq or Afghanistan, okay? An abs absolute bare fraction of uh, those individuals who are investigated uh, ever are prosecuted, 
Okay. And that, that is at odds with actually what we know took place there, which is, you know, there's been uh, at least two public inquiries into the actions of British soldiers in Iraq. Uh, in the first, the Baha Musa inquiry, was it was quite clearly proved that um, Baha Musa, who's a, a hotel worker and um, a widower, um, father of, of two young kids, he, he also uh, looked after his, his deceased sister's two kids. He was tortured and murdered by members of the Queen's, uh, the Queen's Lancashire Regiment in, in Basra in September 2003. That, that happened without a doubt. The, the, the ringleader or the, the purported ringleader ended up pleading guilty uh, and is one of the very few to be prosecuted. But it, it looked like this was quite a, maybe not systemic in that it wasn't, wasn't across the whole army, but there were certainly uh, aspects of the army who were going far beyond what the, the rules are for uh, rules of conduct were, let alone um, human rights and international humanitarian law breaches. And we've seen this since. We've seen how the Ministry of Defence, it looks like, uh, have attempted to try and stifle investigations or to, to bring cover-ups. The BBC and the, the Sunday Times did some excellent journalism uh, on this last year, um, and, uh, and they, it culminated in a very good panorama show about how some of the actions that, that took place and some of the investigations that took place really were shambolic. And in the end, you saw the investigators being shut down when they were on the cusp of bringing charges and so, so this is where, where we got to. Now, the critical thing in it, and, and, and the point which, which perhaps leads me on to the blog piece that I wrote on it, is that the reason why so many investigations were brought it can largely be linked to, to well, I say largely, we, we, the reality is we just don't know what, what actually happened there because of the amount of kind of obscurity and ambiguity and obstacles to investigations. What we do know is that there was a law firm working out of Birmingham, uh, public interest lawyers, who represented a whole swathe of the clients, of the, the Iraqi clients who were trying to, to bring claims and trying to force judicial reviews or uh, claims under Human Rights Act or prosecutions for, for the uh, misbehavior of soldiers. And what we know is that their principal, a man named Phil Shiner, was struck off by the SRA, the, the solicitor's body, for malpractice because of the ways in which he was attracting those clients. Now that 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 has been used as, as basically the catalyst for this piece of legislation. The fact that there was definitely shady behaviour by some solicitors has, um, has 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 reached the point where. Um, all investigations going forward are going to be frightfully more difficult uh, and certainly vastly more difficult for um, uh, for prosecutions to take place. If that, I hope that's, that's clear. So would you say that these dodgy solicitors are almost the reason why, um, why the government, why Parliament are deciding to pass this bill? Uh, interesting. Um, no, I, I wouldn't. I, I would say they were predisposed to block uh, investigations and prosecutions in the first place. Uh, I think that what the, uh, the solicitors did was to create a, an overwhelming opportunity to create the narrative that this legislation was needed to stop shady solicitors when at the you know when uh, I'm pretty sure. And if you look at some of the actions of, of the government since 2003, um, it's been pretty clear that they didn't want to apply obligations in Iraq. They just said, well, no, obligations don't apply in Iraq. Iraq, you know, it's Basra is different from Bradford, from Belfast. We don't have to do what we do at home. 
uh, abroad were not held to the same standard or obligations. They then subsequently tried to cut off legal aid funding on people who were bringing claims. Some of the ways in which the Ministry of Defence complied with some of the cases um, or where, where they were asked to produce evidence or where they were told um, that they needed to attend court it was, was really, really, for, for government departments, was really, really wrong. Um, you know, they weren't handing over documents. They weren't adducing evidence. And we were finding that at every step along the way, you, you, you see instances where, where the government are, are, are really trying to make it more and more difficult for um, uh, for the victims to you know find any uh, accountability or any truth or justice in this, and it, it hit the po- it's hit the point now where it's very very difficult to say with any real sense of security what actually took place and what happened as a result. So so in short, no, I think I think that the the government were primed to try and close investigations and try and close off prosecution and. The reason became very, very clear whenever the wrongdoing by the solicitors was um, uh, was uncovered. I was going to ask about, in the blog, you allude to and talk about what's been said during the reading stages of the bill. Um, and what sort of, what is the importance of what MPs say about pieces of legislation generally, but definitely related to the overseas operation bill um, during this reading stage? Yes. So what's what's important, I think, about it is, is the manner in which it's being conducted. OK, the the the, the tone and tenor of the of the debate is, and, you know, from from the, the over the, the course of the years that I've been looking at parliament and watching parliamentary debates, it's increasingly become more fractious. You know, we, we there's always an element of politicization. There's not always an, an element of point scoring between the opposition and the government. That's wholly expected. What we're seeing with this bill is quite simply an attempt by the government to paint any any criticism of the bill as unpatriotic, as anti-forces, uh, as um, uh, being um, uh, if you if you criticise the bill or the mechanics of the bill or the wording of the bill or if you propose amendments, you're effectively labelled as a traitor, or it's being said that you're facilitating the behaviour of these shady solicitors. Okay, now that. To a degree, listen, that's politicization, that's point scoring. We, we kind of accept that and we expect it. But whenever you, you, you reflect on, you know, what is the purpose of Parliament in drafting primary legislation? Well, well it, it is meant to be the kind of deliberative forum where the representations of us as citizens and, and the electorate it, it, uh, are made. And whenever you see it distilled to quite simply any criticism whatsoever is unpatriotic, it's going to have a direct impact on the quality of the legislation. Now, the, the whether the legislation is necessary or not, you could make an argument and say, listen, if you're going to have legislation which makes this more difficult, okay, let's talk about how you can formulate that legislation in a way which you know meets its aims and objectives, but also complies with the UK's international obligations under human rights under humanitarian law under international criminal law and a lot of the a lot of the, the um, interventions being made by um, by the opposition um, particularly by the SNP and then more recently by the Labour Party have been about you know this bill is just setting us on a straight on a straight road to, to breaching international law what we're seeing is that even that's being shut down. Okay, so there's, there's not any opportunity to improve the piece of legislation uh, or to have a um, uh, maybe an unnecessary 
statute on the books, but a, a statute which, which you know, at least doesn't take us down a dangerous path, which is where this bill is is taking us at the minute. Um, I was going to ask about the removal of torture as an exemption to the bill. What does that mean? Okay, so the, the bill, um, as I said, it's a complex bill, Matt. And yeah. the bill sets up with this triple lock, okay? So the, the presumption against prosecution, the special considerations, and the Attorney General veto, or the Attorney General consent. But within the bill, there's there's an aspect called Schedule 1, so at the bottom of the bill, which, which outlines which crimes this won't apply to, okay? Um, and so you look at that, and, and everybody expected that between the first reading and the second reading of the bill, what we would see is that the uh, prohibition on torture would end up being in Schedule 1 as something which, you know, we're never going to excuse. We're never going to, you know, torture is, is, uh, torture is an absolute uh, wrong. Um, it's in, in every shade of international law, it's, it's prohibited. Uh, whether you're, you, you commit to a binding treaty or not, torture is, is wrong. And so everyone just kind of, a lot, a lot of commentators and observers looked at this and thought, well, torture is going to be excluded from this. So if you've committed torture, if a soldier commits torture, then it doesn't matter whether it's 5, 10, 15, 20, or, or you know, 50 years down the line. If there's evidence to prosecute you, you should be prosecuted. Okay. Um, and so, so the assumption was that the torture would be there. The other things that are actually contained within the schedule are sexual offenses. And they're, they're, they're sexual offenses are, of a whole array, okay? So it's sexual offenses against other people, um, the use of pornography or particular types of pornography, particularly child pornography, the type of things that, that yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, it makes perfect sense to have these things in, in the excluded category. Uh, and by excluded, just to repeat, but excluded means that there's no presumption against prosecution after five years, okay? The, remarkably, whenever it came to the, the second reading of the bill, it, it it was clear that torture wasn't an excluded offence. Okay, so it, it, it falls within the catch the catchment of the presumption against prosecution after five years. Okay, uh, and what, what's what's fascinating in a very weird way is the the arguments and explanations that we kind of have from the government in respect of this. Okay, and their argument was simple: well, we've excluded sexual offences from this because sexual offences should never take place during war, armed conflict. You know, it's, it's not a military um, behavior or not military practice for sexual offenses to ever be allowed. You know, no one will disagree. It's okay. But on the other hand, torture comes in many different shades. And because torture comes in many different shades, it's sensible to allow the prosecuting authority to decide whether or not to, to deal with this under the presumption against prosecution or not. And that's why it's it's been kept in, or to be more correct, why it's not listed as one of these um, exempted offences. The second really interesting point is, is that, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, the, the way the things go, you got a first reading in Parliament, which takes about 15 seconds, and it's the title of the bill. you got the second reading where you've got the big debates, and then it goes off to somewhere called committee, so it, get, it receives um, legislative scrutiny and, and various different things happen. Uh, at one point during uh, an interview with the Joint Committee of Human Rights, um, a man named uh, Nicholas Mercer, who's a, uh, who's a legal advisor to the, the armed forces in, uh, uh, in, during the Iraq conflict, and, and, and Mercer has been very, very critical of the bill, very critical of, of the torture that, that probably did take place during Iraq. He, he was asked, you know, why did they include sexual offences but exclude torture? His answer was this. It was, well, if you look at it, 
William Hague, former um, uh, leader of the Conservative Party, um, one, a one-time prime ministerial candidate, um, uh, former foreign uh, secretary, I think. Well, well, William Hague and Angelina Jolie, the actress, are, are currently spearheading diplomatic efforts internationally on behalf of the UK in respect of prohibiting and, and punishing sexual offences. And it would be a really big PR uh, disaster if uh, we, we turned around and we had Angelina Jolie going to the press and criticising the British government for not exempting sexual offences from the bill. Um, and so, you know, it, it, seems like, it, seems, it, it seems like the government is being influenced more so by uh, an A-list Hollywood actress in, in respect of the design of the bill than they are by any other member of parliament from the opposition parties. Um, uh, and that's that's something which, again, is just you know, it's it's ju- just bemusing. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of difficult balancing acts, isn't it? It's a, it's a tricky. It's in- really interesting. But um, when I was reading, it, I was thinking this is a tricky area of law. And um, so, outside of researching and lecturing and teaching and everything else, do you do any other work? Yeah, so, so other, other kind of work that I do is I frame it just as, as engagement work. Um, so um, I've done a bit of work with um, human rights NGOs um, on particular issues. So um, one, of, one of the things that I look at is the ways in which states should assist their nationals whenever they're in distress or in crisis abroad. So I work with an NGO called Reprieve, who were helping the UN Special Rapporteur on um, arbitrary executions. Um, and what we, what we did was we fed into the UN Special Rapporteur's report on the provision of consular assistance and how that helps um, nationals who are facing human rights violations abroad, particularly where you've got a, you know, you've got a British national in Indonesia or somewhere where they, they retain the death penalty, and that 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 British national is is um, in prison facing the death penalty, and how consular assistance is is so vital to to that individual. Um, but but also just just to go back to the military loop, I, I do uh, every year I go down to um, the Trojan training facility, uh, uh, which is down on the, um, the banks of the Tyne, just uh, just over by the Millennium Bridge, um, and I, I I run kind of uh, debate and education sessions for um, uh, some military cadets down there. Um, uh, and I, I kind of work with them. And, and uh, perhaps I, I, I say that just to stress the point that all of my criticism of the Overseas Operations Bill is, is not aimed at criticism of soldiers or of the military in general. It, it's criticism of, of, of the way in which we're, we're directing uh, or, or the way in which, um, perhaps uh, the better way to frame it, the way in which the government are trying to solve a problem is by making it more difficult for people to to be held to account or to face justice, whenever instead, the simple answer is that, it, you know, if somebody has been accused of an abuse or of an unlawful killing, the answer is really easy. You investigate it as swiftly as possible and as vigorously as possible. And if you find that they are innocent or if you find that they, they don't have a case to answer, then you, you move on from there. And the, the big problem that we've seen is that the investigations have been absolutely uh, um, uh, um, redundant or too slow or too uh, lacking in independence in particular. Um, I've got a question, a bit of like a personal interest question. I'm reading Fake Law by Secret Barrister at the moment, and they talk a lot about the lies and misconceptions about the law and about lawyers in particular in the press. And you alluded to it in your blog post as well, how the it's not just the press anymore. It's actually MPs and the government as well 
um, branding public interest lawyers as like activist lawyers. Um, what do you think that's going to do for the legal profession? What kind of impact do you think that's going to have? Yeah, um, I, t- I mean, it's you're, it's difficult. It's difficult to predict where this is going to go. Um, listen, lawyers have had a bad a, a bad name and a bad reputation since Dickens. You know, it's it's this isn't a new thing that lawyers are are, are viewed as sharks or as viewed as ambulance chasers or tank chasers uh, in in this in the the kind of the military context. Um, what's what's perhaps um, what we're seeing at the moment, I, I think, is is perhaps not not necessarily a coordinated attack on lawyers because uh, you know I, I I don't know if if the Home Secretary is you know is ringing up the Daily Express and the Daily Mail and saying let's hit them today, but but it, it certainly is a pervasive attack on the independence of lawyers, um, and I, I I think this is perhaps an attack on lawyers because they are um, they are not not necessarily the architects but they're the, they're they're the the ones who 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 um, use the law and it's uh, the law in particular that there's a serious concern with and 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 so you know attacks on immigration lawyers are basically attacks on people who are quite simply doing their jobs it's immigration law that the home secretary in particular is is uh, against um, exactly the same with attacks on human rights lawyers or you know lefty do-gooders as uh, as Boris Johnson has, has recently termed them it's it's uh, it's it's not not necessarily attacks on the individual lawyer but it's attacks on human rights law and the way that, that that acts to constrain the government where this goes we don't know you know a best case scenario is that this is just a phase you've probably seen as many responses from the court services or from uh, the SRA or from the bar council or from the law society telling the uh, the politicians to back off on their criticism um, uh, and you, you've, you've probably seen as many of those as you've seen of, of the, the the criticisms themselves and fingers crossed this is just a phase that, that dwindles down and, and you know and, and goes away um, because if it doesn't then you know you 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 really do get into murky territory where you have the executive or the, or the government are trying to um, at least influence the um, uh, the profession in a way which they, they really have no no business um, uh, doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just going to finish by asking a question about what your plans are in terms of the overseas operations bill and your writing around it. Because obviously you've written a blog, but will you be wanted to write in a, a more academic fashion? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. So, a good question. It's definitely something that I want to do. So, the um, I've kept an eye on on the bill, how, how it's gone. Uh, at, the, at our time of speaking, I'll just say that it, it's passed through the the House of Commons, and it, it, it was it was passed without amendment there, and it's had its first reading at the House of Lords. Now, my suspicion is that the Lords are going to give it a far harder time than the the Commons ever did. Quite simply because, you know, as you guys know, the, the House of Lords scrutinizes bills and they, um, given that they are unelected, the, the, the big benefit of that is that they're, you know, they're beholden to nobody. They, they don't have to try and appease, you know, one community or the other. Okay. Um, and you, there are some big hitters in the House of Lords who absolutely do not mind um, speaking their mind on these issues where, where it comes down to, you know, human rights and equality and justice. Uh, that being said, what will be interesting is that the House of Lords have an awful lot of former service um, uh, personnel leaders. You know, uh, former ger- generals are in there, and you've got former ministers of defence who are in there. Now, there has uh, they, they could very well 
try and force the government to amend the bill. Uh, just going back to, to what Neves uh, said um, uh, earlier, it's entirely possible. I think that the House of Lords get to a point where they get torture back alongside sexual offences as one of the things that is excluded from the um, the purview of the, that, that presumption against prosecution after five years. And if they do, then brilliant. You know, it means that whenever I teach public law next year, I can I can turn around and say, look, look at the House of Lords doing their job. OK, but this isn't the only bill that they have. They're going to have to fight the government on. They're, they're, at our time of speaking today, they're, they're looking at the internal market bill, you know, the one which you'll see in the news where the, um, the Secretary of State said, oh, yeah, we are going to breach international law in a, a very specific way. So it, it is going to tell something interesting about that. In terms of my plans, I'm already kind of working up an article on this. So something a lot longer, you know, a 10,000 word piece that I'll send off for, for peer review. But I, I'd like to, I, I'm going to wait basically until um, we see what happens with the bill, because that will give me an understanding of really what the, the wider implications are of it. It's worth writing about because it is such an odd piece of legislation. You know, the, the something I haven't mentioned, but you know, the British Legion are by and large against it, as are a host of other military charities who see it as as being um, other provisions as making it more difficult for soldiers to bring claims against the government as well. And there's, you know, across society, there's an awful lot of anger about this bill and about, let alone about the reputation that it's going to have on um, British forces abroad. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting one and it's probably one that we'll be, we'll be teaching for, for years to come, just, just about the, the, if not it getting passed, just kind of the nature and the content of the debate. Yeah, yeah, I don't have anything else to ask really other than just to say thanks for coming on today and talking to us about your blog uh, and the bill generally it's been really interesting yeah and thank you as well for coming on i've been it's been really entertaining it's nice to hear about what our lecturers do outside of the lecture theater or in this case outside of the zoom calls um yeah. Thank you everyone for listening. If you are an academic or a legal professional who's listened and have got to the end and you would like to be a special guest on our podcast, please email nelr at newcastle.ac.uk to get in touch and get involved. Thank you very much.